Um, so yeah, it's great to see you all. Uh, most of you are aware that we have been going through the book of First Timothy. Uh, we've been we're on a, a good long run uh, on this book. We started this in the summer, uh, doing some small groups, and we're still moving along through it. Um, so I invite you to turn with me to First Timothy chapter five. That's where we're going to start tonight. Um, and I just want to remind you. And th- this, this, this epistle is written by Paul to a young pastor, Timothy. It's a pastoral epistle. And so there's just a constant, constant appearance and reminder of leadership all throughout this book. And so where we've been so far in chapter 1, we saw the self-enabled leaders with selfish motivations contrasted with Paul as, Christ-enabled, as a Christ-enabled leader and pattern for us to follow. And then chapter 2 opened by telling us to pray for those in leadership that they would allow us to live in such a way that God's will for all to be saved could be facilitated through our lives. And, and then the end of chapter 2, we saw the humble role of women in the church and how their submittance to that role can be a testimony of Christ. And then in chapter 3, uh, a couple leadership roles for men in the church and how their lives through that can be a testimony of Christ. And then chapter 4, more recently, we saw, two leadership, we saw the leader being put in remembrance uh, of some warnings and exhortations as he labors to be a good minister of Jesus Christ in the church. And so now opening up in chapter five, we're gonna address the leader's responsibilities in church relationships. And so uh, being a pastoral epistle, I also wanted to remind you of a few verses about the responsibilities of a pastor and who he is and what he does. And in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, Paul's talking about gifts that Christ gave to us uh, and gave to the church. And it says that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then in Acts 20, 28, Paul's talking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, and he says, take heed, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And finally, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, uh, it says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, rebru- reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And so a pastor does and holds a lot of responsibility in the church and does a lot of things. Um, he holds the office of ruler and oversight to watch for your souls and to be an example, to speak the word, to preach the word, to feed the flock, to give an account to Christ, to perfect the saints, do the work of the ministry, to edify the body of Christ, and to rebru- reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And so, when he does those things, and as he does those things, I mean, they're about the church, they're about the body, they're, um, they're about the flock, and so he's going to have a lot of interaction with that flock. And so, consider the picture of a shepherd with a sheep. You know, he's not only protecting the sheep and feeding the sheep, but he's also guiding them. Uh, he's, the, the shepherd has the oversight, and he's got the vision. He's got the high vantage point to see what they can't, and he's trying to lead them to the places of safety and blessing. But sheep are not known for being the smartest creatures, um, and it's fitting then that the Lord calls us sheep uh, in the church. Um, but in Psalms 23, 1 and 2, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside, notice, the still waters. And we need still waters. Yet so often we're distracted by the rushing waters and we run to them. The, they look exciting. And, but that's dangerous. You know, we could fall in, we could drown. And the shepherd recognizes this and guides us to the right place, to the safe place. 
So he's constantly correcting our path and moving us toward positions of greater faith and obedience to the Lord. So let's pray and then we'll dive into our passage. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we come before you tonight and we're just thankful. We're thankful for who you are. I'm thankful that, that you are a shepherd to us um, and that you guide and lead us in that way and um, display unbelievable love towards us. And, um, and, and Lord, you're a servant. Uh, you came to this planet to be a servant and, and man, you, have, you have then exalted uh, yourself up because of that humble role um, and, and you're worthy of that. And so we thank you for that example we thank you for letting us be here tonight and, and for giving us your word, for giving us your spirit. Um, thanks for all the blessings that you give us, Lord. Um, we are forever, forever grateful to you. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight um, as we look through this passage in your word. And just pray that, that we could walk out of here looking more like you uh, as a result. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So into our passage. So we're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 5. So starting at verse 1, it says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. And so there's, there, we're going to break this passage up really into two main points. Uh, I tried hard to make three, and I just couldn't do it. Um, there's quite the turn. So the first section that we're going to look at is the pastor's approach to others, uh, coming out of the first two verses. Um, and actually, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Um, and so that those first two verses again uh, say, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger man as brethren, the elder woman as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. And so we see four people groups here, um, but we're actually going to spend most of our time on the first um, and most of our study there, and the rest will uh, fall right into place after that. And so the first person that we see is an elder. And so before we can understand why Paul tells Timothy what he does about the elders, we need to make sure we understand who they are. And so the word elder here, uh, it's a noun. No, notice that it, it doesn't say the elder men, it just says elders. And an elder is a specific person. And so I'd just like to look at a few verses as to uh, how we can see who elders are. And so the, the first verse we're going to look at is Genesis twenty nine sixteen, and we're going to see its most simple use. It's just most basic use. And it means older is what it means. In Genesis 29, 16, it says, And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And so we see it's just very, Leah was older than Rachel. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. Um, and it's interesting here because in comparing, uh, it's, it's comparing the age of Laban's kids to each other. Um, but really the oldest person in the verse is Laban, right? <laughs> um, and now children grow up. And we, know, we don't know the age of Leah and Rachel in this verse, but we do know that Leah is older. And so while uh, el- the word elder is a comparison of age, it doesn't necessarily have to mean a specific age, which is just something to keep in mind. Um, but more frequently in Scripture, uh, the word is used to be a connection with an implied maturity uh, that comes with age. And 
maturity comes with implied responsibility as well. So most often, it's, it's the elder people or the older people in a congregation that are the leaders. Um, and so it's more frequently used in that description of those in any kind of leadership role. And so in Numbers 11, 16 through 17, uh, the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness. Moses is leading them, and he's burdened by this mass quantity of people that he's got to lead. And it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and I will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And so notice that these elders were officers over them already. And God then had Moses give them more responsibility. And you see a multitude of verses about the elders of Israel in the Old Testament. It's full of them. And they all have the same implied meaning, which is that of an older, more mature guy with some kind of leadership responsibility. Um, and, and even in the, just thinking about the structure of a family, uh, it makes sense in its most basic structure as the guy, the, the man in the house being the head of the household, and who is just typically the oldest one. Not always, but typically he, he is. Um, and so anyway, the, and that would just be, you know, it would be derived in its most basic form from there, and it goes up. And so there's a similar understanding then in the church. As we've seen in previous weeks, an official elder in the church is not only a guy that is older than others, but a mature Christian that's, that is either in some kind of leadership role or has some leadership responsibility or at least has some leadership capacity. And so check out Titus 1.5. It says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are, that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of ride or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. The gainsayers. And so we see here that, that list about the elders. So ordain these people, and then we follow, see that list, and it should sound familiar. Because we saw a lot of the things in that list back in chapter 3 when we were talking about the qualifications of a bishop. And, and you even see where, where Paul picks up. He's like, hey, ordain these people that are this. And he says, why? Because a bishop must be all of these things. And so, you know, we see that in that verse also that elders can be ordained. And the qualifying list for an elder to be ordained is the same or similar to that of the qualifying list of a pastor. So the elders were already spiritually mature leaders in the church. And a little farther down in our passage here in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy in verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And so elders can rule, and they can labor in the word and doctrine, and they're worthy of honor, which we can, we'll, we're going to talk about that later. But finally, Peter calls himself an elder in 1 Peter 5. It says, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a, partake, a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So Peter's an elder, and he exhorts the elders to feed the flock of God, take its oversight, not lording over it, but being an example. So in the church, it seems that there can be a really fine line between an elder and a pastor, if there is a line at all. But, to be fair, they are two different words. God didn't have to use two different words. He did, on purpose. And, so, and he doesn't explicitly say they're the same very clearly. And so I'll summarize it this way. A pastor is an elder, but an elder isn't necessarily a pastor. Elder is a more broad leadership term, while a pastor holds a specific leadership office. An elder can be a more unofficial leader. So at the most, back to our passage, the elder person being talked about here in 1 Timothy 5.1 could be understood to be a pastor. And at the least, it implies someone of a level of physical and spiritual maturity and leadership. And this understanding follows suit with what Paul's directive to Timothy is as he tells him not to rebuke him. But as a quick reminder, we, how we, the, for one of the first few verses we looked at, um, a rebuke is something that a pastor is supposed to do. And we saw it in 2 Timothy 4.2, but let me show you Titus 2.15. It says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So a pastor must rebuke at times, or he's not doing his job. But he must know how and when it's necessary. And so, what exactly does that mean as far as rebuking goes? Uh, you know, I know we, we've got a general understanding of the word, um, but it's always good practice to allow God to define the words that he uses. So I devoted quite a bit of time looking through the 80 occasions that God uses the word in scripture to see how he uses it. And so I'll, I'll summarize my research in, in this fashion. To rebuke is to command a correction, if I could define it as simple as possible. And when you do that, it displays authority, it derives a division, it demands a change, it drives back opposition, and it's done per, for preservation. And so the first mention uh, of this word rebuke uh, we'll look at in Genesis, and in the context, Laban, who is Jacob's father-in-law, uh, is a guy that he worked for for 14 years to get uh, his two wives, which are Laban's daughters. And he eventually, he's with them for a while, he grows uh, in stature, and he's got a lot of cattle and a big family, and eventually he leaves, and Laban's kind of ticked about it, and so he pursues after him, and he overtakes him. And so we see in Genesis 31:42, Jacob then speaking to Laban, says, Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou had sent me away now empty. God hath seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight. Yesternight, yesterday night. And so, but before we even see what the rebuke is, notice, it's the Lord that's doing the rebuking. And the last time the word rebuke is used in the Bible, it's the same deal. God has the authority to rebuke. So now, let's take a look at what God's rebuke to Laban actually was, backing up a few verses in verse 24 of that same chapter. Genesis 31, 24. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Well, that's it. God told him not to speak good or bad to Jacob. At first, it doesn't seem like much of a rebuke. At least that's at first what I thought too, but... Um, but look, God knew Laban's intentions, and so did Jacob. Uh, when Jacob was talking to him 
in verse 42, we saw uh, him say that Laban was going to send him away empty. He was going to take everything back that he had. And so Laban had a few choice words for Jacob. And those words were actually contrary to the blessing passed down to him from Genesis 12. And God rebuked Laban. And so we see this rebuke display God's authority according to his word. We see it establish a division between Jacob and Laban. Jacob as God's blessed man and Laban as his opposition that's driven back, allowing Jacob to be preserved. One of the coolest examples that I thought, that that I found, um, was in Psalms 106.9. For context, we'll start in verse 7. And it says, Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, there it is, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Start to see the picture? Well, let's actually look at it quick in Exodus where that happened. So in Exodus 14, 6, God tells Moses, But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And so a few verses later, when Moses is obedient, it says, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And so that's, that's interesting. So Moses, with the, the authority of God, he divides the opposing waters. They were the opposition. And God drove them back with the east wind i.e. wind, breath, voice, commandment, to preserve Israel from the enemy. God says that that, what happened, was him rebuking the Red Sea. And I I don't know, I just think that's cool. I love, I mean, that the Red Sea parting is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. It's awesome. Um, And so last, jumping back into our context here, um, in 1 Timothy 5.20, we see, them that sin rebuke before all, that that others also may fear. And we'll see more about this in coming weeks, but, uh, but Paul's direction to Timothy is the pastor is that the pastor, under the authority of God, establishes a division between right and wrong, driving back the opposition, and commands a correction of the sinful party for the protection of the church. So, back to our passage. So now knowing who an elder is and what rebuke is, it ought to be pretty clear that they shouldn't go together. Uh, at least, they, you know, you hope they don't need to. Um, especially, I mean, if the elder's the person he's supposed to be, they don't need to. But now, this allows us to see this big contrast in our passage. Um, because the contrast to rebuke is entreat. And that is what a pastor and all of us are supposed to do instead of rebuke. Especially to that of an elder. So talking about the word entreat now, um, really, the idea of seeing how God uses a word is important again. So that's basically all we've been doing is seeing how God uses these words. Um, but it's really important because look, if, with this word entreat, if you simply look that word up in the dictionary, you're only going to find the word entreat, E-N-T-R-E-A-T. But the word God uses here is entreat, I-N-T-R-E-A-T. And now, you know, when you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find the definition for both of those under the word entreat. But the Bible is clearer because it keeps them separate. 
So the difference is simple. Entreat basically means to treat. It's how you treat others, generally. You could remember E-N for external, how you treat them on the outside, right? Deuteronomy 26.6, And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. They weren't nice to us. <laughs> they, they treated us poorly. Uh, it's pretty clear. But entreat, then, basically is to approach. But it's with the understanding of having a request an approach with the intent of obtaining what you request or gaining favor. In Proverbs 19.6, we see the word. It says, Many will, in, will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. So everybody wants to entreat the prince, the guy who's got a lot of money. Uh, you want gifts. You, you know, you're trying to obtain his favor. That's a good thing, right? You want to entreat him. And so this is cool because this is a cool contrast. To rebuke is to require a change, but to entreat is to desire a change. And so knowing the difference also provides context to what the necessary change is. From the standpoint of a pastor, remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to lead you, to guide you, to grow you. Look, change is not easy for me. (laughs) I resist it at times. Um, And I need the pastor to entreat me to be more like Christ, to have more faith, to be more sanctified, to follow him better. For those of you that have played sports, think of your coach. Wasn't he always trying to push you to make you better? Was that easy? We saw godliness compared to exercise uh, a few weeks ago back in 1 Timothy 4.8. Your pastor is your spiritual coach, so you should listen to him. And the fact that the direction Paul gives to the pastor here is to not rebuke, which is always a matter of sin, um, but to entreat, shows that this does not always have to be about matters of sin, but can be about matters of growth, which is one of the main duties of the pastor as he is to shepherd the flock. And even on the subject of sin, though, rebuke has a specific application for use, for use and just as the list we saw back in 1 Timothy 3 doesn't have to legalistically mean that a, a pastor can never sin ever, Well, so also does the fact that when we sin, it doesn't always legalistically require rebuking. Look, sometimes it it simply needs to be entreated. We we need it to be entreated to change. Uh, Because while rebuke establishes a division, entreatment establishes agreement. And look, that's the story of the gospel. In John 3, 16 through 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God didn't come into the world to to rebuke it. He came to entreat it that they would believe the gospel. And if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, we're glad you're here. And as, as much as we all hate sin because it ruins our lives, look, it's not our desire to rebuke you for your sin. It's our desire to entreat you to believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as payment for your sin. And if you haven't done that, please consider that tonight. Our sin separates us from God, but he wants you to be his son or his daughter, and he invites you to be so freely. He's already done everything that needs to be done to make it possible. All you have to do is agree with him about your absolute broken and sinful state and call upon the name of the Lord to save you, like it says in Romans 10, 13. And in Romans 10, 9, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And, and whenever I was in the midst of this decision, 
uh, of, of giving my life to the Lord and salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 were verses that, that really shed light to me and, and really helped me out. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's by his grace and our faith that there's a decision. You have to choose to believe. And it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. He already did it all, lest any man should boast. Look, and if you're here tonight and you've already made that decision, praise God. He's your father. So let me encourage you. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. Because you have a father that's also called the Ancient of Days. And he is the elder. And I don't know where you're at with God right now, but I know that life has its mountains and its valleys, and it has for me. But remember, your heavenly Father loves you, and he wants to hear from you. He wants us to make our requests and desires known unto him. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And look, you can be honest with him along the way too. Life isn't always great. Consider David's honesty with God. In Psalms 13, verses 1 through, one through 3, it says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Light mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Have you ever been there? I've been there before. But even in those times, please, don't rebuke God. Entreat him. And look, you can follow the, your pastor, a picture of God for you. You can follow him in those hard times too. He's there for you to follow. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Look, but also follow the direction given to him in this passage. And so the pastor isn't to rebuke, so if he isn't to do this, then we certainly aren't either. And, and look, we'll, we'll talk more about this in coming weeks uh, to bring the idea of rebuke full circle. This is kind of only half the story, um, but this is where we're at right now. And so in 1 Timothy 5.20, we see in the idea of rebuke, if we bring any false accusations against an elder, that's a cause for us to be rebuked before all, like the whole church in front of them all. It's not good, that's bad. And God forbid that you do ever find yourself in the wrong. And if that's the case, in Revelation 3.19, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Don't stay that way. Repent, change. And now up to this point, we've put pretty much all of our focus on elders um, because I think that's where most of the teaching was needed. I think that's the emphasis of the passage, uh, especially considering the context of the, the pastoral epistle as a whole. And so we needed to understand all of that. And, and now the rest is simple. In putting all of the people groups together, we see the family aspect of the church. In Ephesians 2.19, says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So we're all a part of the household of God if you're saved. We're related by the blood of Christ. And the church is our spiritual family, pastor included. So as he is entreating everyone as the shepherd of the flock, Paul sets the physical family structure that we are all familiar with as a guide. And just as in a physical family, we should all be loving and caring for one another, and really, in that aspect, our end treatment of others should, should be the same. 
In Romans 12.10, it says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. And we already saw in 1 Peter 5.3 that the pastor isn't supposed to be lording over God's heritage. I mean, after all, Jesus says in Mark 10.42-45, he says, uh, But Jesus, call, Jesus called them unto him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. For whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest, look, the, the one in charge, the pastor is in charge, he'll sh- he shall be servant of all. Well, look, for even the Son of Man, he's the chiefest, right? For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So the pastor and all of us are servants to one another. So we, and we should all be subject to one another as well. In 1 Peter 5.5, 5, it says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. But notice how that verse starts. Even though our end treatment is the same, our end treatment may not necessarily be the same based on our roles, which are displayed through the family structure. So you wouldn't approach your father in the same way that you approach your friends. And even your friends of the opposite gender, you would approach differently than those of the same. And Paul's admonition there is to make sure you do that with purity. So on a quick side note, if you want some good dating advice, here's some. Look, you won't find dating in the Bible specifically, but you'll find this. Guys, approach young men as sisters with all purity. Or girls, approach, appro- did I, I did say the wrong thing. <laughs> Don't, do that. Don't do that. Guys, approach young women as sisters with all purity. Girls, approach young men as brothers with all purity. Make the right application. Right. And I say that as an engaged guy. Until you're one, your brothers or sisters have purity. And so next, the passage takes quite a turn. Um, And so we're going to turn our attention to widows, which is your next point. The pastor's attention to widows. And with the rest of these verses, just look at the first verse again. We're going to hit the rest as we go. In 1 Timothy 5, 3, it says, Honor widows that are widows indeed. And so here we see yet another word uh, that that we should be familiar with, how the Lord uses. And, And honor can be a little bit more tricky. Um, Because it actually does have quite a few different meanings, and God uses it in different ways in Scripture. And I'll boil it down to two. It's probably more than that, but I'll boil it down to to two. Uh, One one usage could be that of status and position. It's praise and reverence, respect, value, and authority. And the other usage could be that of, like, you you promote honor by using money or valuables. It's in reference to financial help, and that's the context we're going to see here. Um, so let's, let's see the Lord use it first in Matthew 15, 3 to 6. And in this context, Jesus is yelling at the Pharisees, like, like always, um, for perverting his commandments by their tradition, and it involves financial aid to parents. And it says in verse 3, but he answered and said unto them, why do ye also tra- transgress the commandment of God by your transition? Tran- tradition? For God commanded saying, Honor, there it is, thy father and mother. And he that curseth father or mother, let him, die the, let him die the death. But ye say, 
Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it's a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, in honor, not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And so what's going on here in this verse is that the, the Pharisees are supposed to be honoring their father and their mother, Jesus says financially, and they're getting out of it. He, they're saying, hey, thou, you know, what, what you might be profited by me, A, it's a gift. It's a gift to God. And they're, you know, they're using Levitical law wrongly to say, you know, something devoted to God goes to no one else. And so the, they're, they're trying to find this loophole. Um, and the commandment to honor your parents was, you know, in, back in Exodus, the Ten Commandments, it's meant to be uh, more, more than just valuing and esteem, although it's true, but it, it comes with financial gain also. So the Pharisees were trying to loophole that honor to their parents by claiming the money, money was offered to God uh, or the priest. And, and of course they do so selfishly because then they can give more uh, and look better because they're all about their looks. And in doing so, cursing their elderly parents to death because they won't take care of them or honor them. And that's hardly God's design. It straightly goes against honoring your father or mother. And I'll refrain from making a political comment about political things, <laughs> about the structure of taking care of elderly people. So that's the kind of honor that we're talking about in our passage here. Widows are valued and honored financially by the church. So back in 1 Timothy 5.3, it says, honor widows that are widows indeed. And this makes sense because I also think the word honor has a financial spin in 1 Peter 3.7 when it says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, meaning your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. And so although today's context is certainly different than that of biblical times, as a general rule, it's still true today that the husband, you know, as the leader of the house is the breadwinner, provides the financial provision. And so when he passes or I'll even allow, you know, you can make a good case for if he deserts as well. She needs that financial support. And so the pastor, as the leader of the church, he can and should see to it that the church meets that need. But there's some stipulations involved. And so we see this word indeed in verse 3. And it provides a qualifier to widows that should be taken into the number as it's phrased in verse 9. And we're going to see that verse more next week. But meaning, basically, some should be taken into the care of the church and some shouldn't. And the qualifier that we see from this verse tonight, uh, is, uh, this passage, is going to be more family-oriented, uh, while we'll see some qualifiers next, ye- next week that are more character-oriented. Um, so our answer for tonight is found in verse 5. And it says, Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. And so a widow indeed, and desolate, there it is. Uh, A widow that is desolate is alone. She doesn't have anyone else to take care of her. That's a widow indeed. And we know that also because verse four of, of our passage, it says, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents. For that is good and acceptable before God. So to requite, meaning like to repay and piety as a reverence or devotion. And so a widow that isn't alone, but has children or even nephews, should be taken care of by them. 
she's not considered desolate then, so uh, she should take. So they should take care of her first instead of the church. And next week we'll look down and see verse 16, but it's confirmed there again. Um, and we see the concept that widows aren't desolate, but they should be taken care of by their family first if they have it. It says, if any, man, if any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. And, and look, it's not just so that the church can get out of it, you know, and, and not have to take care of them, but um, it's, it's so that they can continue to support those that truly are desolate and that are widows indeed. And so in, in this context, Paul reinforces uh, what we saw in Exodus 2012, where you're supposed to honor your father and your mother. And especially in verse 8 of our passage, 1 Timothy 5, 8, says, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an, inf- than an infidel. And our first ministry is always to our family. We have to get that right first. It's the physical. That's why it's a requirement for a pastor that we went over back in chapter three a while ago. And the spiritual is always so much greater than the physical, so much more important. There's so much more emphasis on the spiritual. Jesus says in Luke 16, 10 through 11, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If ye therefore, if therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Why? Because the spiritual is so much greater than the physical. And in John three twelve, Jesus tells Nicodemus, I have told, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Because the spiritual is so much greater than the physical. And in Mark 7, Matthew seven eleven, Jesus says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Because the spiritual is so much greater than the physical. And even the physical evil father knows how to good, give good gifts to his family. But, but we are of the spiritual family, the greater family, the very household of that faith. In Galatians 6.10 it says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And God, as the perfect father, says in John 6.37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and in him, and in him that come and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God's not casting the family out. And so denying the faith doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing your salvation. Based on that verse we just saw, you know, Jesus is going to cast you out. But how, how are you a partake, a partaker of the greater realm and not faithful in the lesser? How can you or how can the parents of the lesser realm take care of their own and not you? How can you be in the household of faith and not even take care of your own physical household? It's totally contrary to the faith. Look, at least an infidel has to break in and you know what side he's on. Sabotage of the faith is worse. How many people do you know that turn down the faith because of hypocrisy? That's worth rebuke. In James 1.27, it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. 
God recognizes the affliction that some of us has to face and have to face in this world, especially the fatherless and the widows. And part of the reason why is because the picture is so messed up. The Church of Christ is not and will never be a widow. So God has an extra special place in his heart for widows. And just like the fatherless, the same, because we all have a heavenly father. He's a father to us all. And, you know, a lot of times our physical state doesn't reflect our spiritual state. But make no mistake, the sufferings of this present time won't compare to the glory that shall be revealed to us in the future. And until then, God says he'll never leave you or forsake you. He wants you to come unto him and in him you can find rest. Thankfully, we can be with him physically now through his body, the church, led by the pastor. So take residence in that. Continue in prayers and supplications night and day and wait for his glorious appearing. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we love you. And Lord, thank you so much that you are a loving Father. Uh, Lord, at your rebuke, we're nothing. Um, but you choose not to rebuke us, and when you do, it's in love um, to bring us back to you. And Lord, thank you so much that, that you don't overlook uh, the poor, you don't overlook widows, you don't overlook the fatherless. Uh, even in all of your greatness, you care about our trials on this planet, um, and you have a greater plan, and we thank you for that. I pray that, that as we go about our lives, that, that we would always be submitting to the authorities that you've placed in our lives, uh, that we would always walk humbly before you, uh, knowing that if we don't, you'll cast us down, um, but knowing that if we do, you'll lift us up. You set that example through your son, um, and we're so grateful for him that he walked this planet and he did it all right. Uh, and even at that, he died on a cross for our sins and he was not deserving of that death. Lord, but you did it anyway because of your love for us to reconcile us back to you and we are so thankful for that. Uh, Lord, I thank you for drawing me to yourself and entreating me to believe the gospel. And uh, Lord, I'm forever grateful of that. I pray that if there's anybody here tonight um, that doesn't know you, that, that you would draw them to you and that they would, be, they would be bold to respond and just submit to the truth of your word. And Lord, that as all of us follow you, I pray that, that we could follow the lead of the pastor and uh, Lord, that, that we wouldn't get caught up in sin and just the, that we could follow you in a pure way. Um, I pray for opportunities this week as, as we go forth to our jobs and go forth uh, to the world and, and, the fr and our friends, Lord, that, uh, that we could display the hope to them that we have in you. And that's why we're still here. Um, so we're grateful for you. We thank you so much for all that you do for us. Thanks for tonight. Thanks for letting us be here. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.